He said, you know, um, what was so compelling for me, the thing that I couldn't stop thinking about was how much love was flowing between you guys and how much you cared about our town, our neighborhoods, and the concrete ways you were demonstrating that love and what you did. And that was such good news that really all I needed was a way to set aside my, my mental blocks and I was all in. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Communitas Podcast. Joy Preston and I today, we are live on Zoom with Dr. Kent Smith coming to us from Abilene, Texas. And Kent, so, so glad to have you with us today. Um, just for our listeners, a little background. Uh, Kent is the co-founder of Luke 10, part of the Eden community and a professor at Abilene. And wow, just so, so many things that I'm looking forward to hearing from you, Kent. How are you doing today? And give us a little background. Yeah, delighted to be with you all. Um, just have known and Love the work of Communitas for many years now, and uh, really so pleased to be able to have this conversation with you all about things that I think we all really care about. Yeah, thank you for sure, for sure. So for those of uh, our audience that may not know you, Kent, give us a little bit of, of your your personal background, uh, how, what shaped and formed you as a person of faith, even growing up, and what has led to uh, the work that you've dedicated your life to now? Yeah. Well, uh, when I was 17, a couple of things happened, uh, two events that at the time I didn't think were connected and didn't th see as particularly significant. But you know how that works. Over time, those, uh, those little moments often end up proving to have been very uh, significant. Mm -hmm. So the first happened uh, when I was in uh, West Chicago High School in the hall. One of the drug dealers of the school walked up to me looking pretty angry. And he said, uh, Smith, do you really believe in God? What I wanted to do in that moment was run because this guy was just so crazy. He was unpredictable. And uh, mm -hmm. a, a year before he had given me my one permanent tattoo. I have a, still carry it with me. He, uh, he stabbed me with a number two pencil and uh, that graphite still in my leg. Wow. So he was just one of these guys that you didn't want to mess with. Um, so I wanted to run, but I, I managed to stay put. I looked him in the eye and I said, uh, yes, I do believe in God. And what happened next really shocked me because he, uh, his eyes welled up with tears and he said, well, then why did God let my brother die in Vietnam last year? And he turned on his heel and walked away. He wasn't waiting for my answer and I didn't have an answer at 17. I still don't have an answer for that question. But that experience with him galvanized something that had been kind of working in my heart for a while at that point. Um, I was a young believer, but I, I realized that I was so privileged. You know, my folks were people of faith. I'd grown up in a family that was deeply committed to God. My folks were church planters in the upper Midwest. And, um, and the question that kind of formed for me that day was, what will it take for ordinary people in our time to know God for who God really is. Mm -hmm. And that really has set me on a quest that I have continued to pursue right now into the present day. 
So that was the first experience. The other one happened maybe um, five or six months later. I was uh, in uh, the last night of a two-week youth camp up in northern Wisconsin, a beautiful place. We had had an amazing um, couple of weeks together with about 70 campers and lots of staff and others that were there. Um, and um, one, of this, one of the other campers around the campfire said, um, man, I am not looking forward to getting back to the real world. And that, that, um, that statement hit me in the gut. It, it was one of those, no, we're not getting ready to go back into the real world. We've been experiencing the real world. These days of living and loving, playing, worshiping, celebrating God's life together, these days of thinking deeply about what matters and caring for one another, seeing people come to faith. This, that, this has been the real world. Uh, and it set me on a quest again to find out, you know, how could that become more the norm for people's experience in our time? Mm -hmm. So uh, the first question uh, put me on a, a, a bit of a, um, a crazy drive to figure out how can I share my faith more effectively? And uh, at the time, uh, D. James Kennedy's evangelism explosion was all the rage for sharing faith. So I learned that that uh, method pretty well. I learned some others, the Rollins Road, some other things. And when I was a uh, sophomore in college, I led a, a group of students to the Pacific Northwest, about 25 of us. And we were just doing old style, you know, cold call evangelism, knocking on doors, seeing if folks were interested in studying the Bible. And um, so... And in uh, about six weeks, I baptized with my, my partner, 27 people. And I came away from that experience just walking on clouds. It was like, man, this news is so good. If people just hear it, they'll accept it and everything will be amazing. And um, so, but the following summer, I went back to visit those people. And, uh, and it was a difficult experience for me because... And door after door, as I knocked on those doors to see those people again, when they saw who was standing there, their eyes hit the ground. And when I kind of explored how are they doing, they uh, they basically told me in one way or another, you know, you really lied to us, Kent. Mm. You told us about this amazing new life that we were entering into where God is our father, Jesus is our brother. We're going to have a community that's with us, has our backs no matter what for the, forever. And since you left, we haven't heard from anybody, not you, not them, not anybody. Frankly, we're not interested. And it was like a kick to the gut, really, for me. I, it was one of the most devastating moments in my life to realize I've probably actually harmed these people. Mm. I, I, gave them, I gave them a message of good news, amazing good news, but they had no opportunity to actually experience the reality of that good news beyond an initial promise. And um, so that sent me back to the drawing board. I had um, done an undergraduate degree in biology, but I went on to do master's degree studies in New Testament. And I was really still asking the question, how in the world can we help people in our time come to know God for who God really is? And um, Things began to, to come together for me. Maybe uh, if we fast forward six or seven years, I'm, I'm 
working for a small church in southern Wisconsin as kind of their preacher pastor. Met a guy named John who was a atheist, a chemical engineer, really good guy. Um, and uh, I found out that John liked to canoe and liked to fly fish. Oh, perfect. So I said, uh, <laughs> hey, John, let's let's take a weekend, long weekend, and, and go spend a few nights camping out and uh, hanging out together. And he liked that idea, so we went and did that. And we got to doing it, um, you know, two, three, four times a year, depending on the year. Started bringing a few of my other buddies. I had a friend who was a young believer who was a, a Delta pilot and another guy who was a city manager who was struggling with some addictions but was just a, a great-hearted soul. And so sometimes it'd be three or four of us. About four years into that process, uh, we're on our way home from one of those trips. And John looks over at me and says, Kent, you know, I really like you guys. And I love what you're doing. And, you know, I think I would be right in the middle of it with you if I didn't have to put my brain in a basket to do it. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of smiled to myself. And when we got home, I said, John, give me just a second. I want to grab something for you. So I ran in and got my worn copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. handed it to John. And I said, John, read this. And if you ever want to talk about it, I'd love to, love to visit with you. Well, didn't hear anything from John for about three weeks. And then one morning I got a phone call and uh, he said, uh, Kent, I'm ready to follow Jesus. When can I be baptized? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so as I, as I talked with John about his, his experience of coming to faith in the years after that, he said, you know, um, what was so compelling for me, the thing that I couldn't stop thinking about was how much love was flowing between you guys and how much you cared about our town, our, the neighborhoods, and the concrete ways you were demonstrating that love in what you did. And that was such good news that really all I needed was a way to, you know, set aside my, my mental blocks and I was all in. And uh, so that experience, that sort of series of experiences um, had set me up, I think, for, I ended up doing doctoral work in spiritual nurture systems because I was realizing more and more that this isn't about just an individual developing a relationship with Jesus. This is about communities. This is about ecosystems of God's love and grace. This is about the way that God has always designed humans to live and thrive. And, uh, so, um, that set of experiences really helped me begin to see how those two early experiences actually uh, were actually pointing to the same answer. Thank you for that. That's that's outstanding. It, it is it is thought provoking um, and very in line. A, a lot of kind of some of the conclusions you've come to are similar to the conclusions of communitas. Uh, I mean, look at the first two words of the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Our father, not my father, mm -hmm. but but there was a time, and you kind of went through that that season, evangelism explosion, and others where it kind of shifted to my father mm -hmm. instead of our father, and and I don't know that that served very well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, it's just a reflection of a broader Western and very American um, cultural undergirding pillar, which is. Uh, this whole life is about my personal 
uh, actualization. It's all about me. And the radical individualism of the Western world is um, is just sort of the the fruit of uh, centuries and centuries of, of of thought that I think have been taking us off track around how things actually are. That's right. <clears throat> so take us forward a little bit and speak to Luke 10 and its its founding and it's certainly the impact it has now is is significant. So tell us a bit about that. My my co-founder John White and I met in two thousand and three, uh, and we had um, both by then had uh, careers in training and in ministry. We've done ministry. We'd been in, in leadership roles in churches, pastoring and um, planting churches, and and at that point I'd been. Uh, about 12 or 15 years in the graduate school of theology here at Evelyn Christian, training folks in cross-cultural mission, especially for North America, but thinking about working with teens really all over the world. And it was really beginning, getting clear to me and to John at that point that we were in the middle of a major cultural revolution in, in terms of uh, church life, but really just more broadly, uh, lots of things were changing all, all around us. And that spoke to us about the need for some new paradigms, both for what leadership could look like, but also how we would need to train those kinds of leaders. And um, so I had just come back from a year in England. Um, Karen and I had helped uh, serve ACU study abroad office in Oxford for for the year. And Boy, that was a deep dive into post-Christendom. My goodness, because those who have spent any time at all in Europe, you know, know the the relics, the vestiges of uh, Christendom are everywhere you turn, but uh, the substance is long gone. Um, so, lots of big cathedrals that are now in in large um, and often beautiful old church buildings that are. Now, uh, nightclubs or mosques are being, you know, sold for all kinds of purposes. The ones that are still there often have a few very elderly people and one vicar up front who's kind of carrying things on. But um, boy, what a wake-up call to how things were have rolled in Europe and how I could see then they were rolling in North America. And, um, you know, the the question of, you know, if this is not good news, where it's been practiced for so long, and in some ways with such artistry and such skill and such knowledge, um, where will it work? And if this isn't what works, then what does? And kind of back to my earlier questions as a younger man, how will people in our time come to know God, who God really is? It appears, it certainly was clear to me that year that we needed to be rethinking things. That had been my conclusion before I got to Europe, but boy, that super reinforced it. So when I got back, I, I reached out to some people who were thinking pretty hard about new wine scans and new forms of church and new expressions of, of kingdom life. Um, we had some friends in Austin named uh, Tony Dale and his wife, Felicity, were beautiful, uh, thoughtful leaders, and uh, they were gathering folks from all over the world uh, to come in and have long conversations about where do we go from here, basically. John and I, in those years, forged a deep friendship, and we began to kind of experiment with a, a group that was, uh, at that time, a pretty widespread uh, church planting organization called Dawn. John and I were part of the team that was doing uh, experimentation for church planting in North America. 
And the longer we got into that, the more we realized this needs to be simpler. This needs to be more foundational than so much of what is being done in church planting these days. It needs to be way less expensive. It needs to be way more accessible to lots more people to have a hand in it. And so we began experimenting and then launched Luke 10 in uh, 2008. And uh, 10 years or so into that process, Tony and Matt Daniels joined us, good, good friends, good communitas, uh, connected friends from Uruguay. And uh, by then we were seeing people really all over the world. We were, I think, in almost 40 countries by that time. And so Matt and Tony, John and I got together for a long weekend in uh, in Nashville and uh, just said, you know, what what is the Lord wanting us to, to notice about what seems to be happening? Not just through Luke 10, but in lots of other places and through lots of other groups. And of course, Tony brought, Tony and Matt brought insider knowledge of a lot of the work of Jim Wilder and Kalinitas uh, and some of the other folks that are thinking very deeply about relationship. And uh, mm-hmm. so kind of coming out of that experience of kind of thinking hard about that, we identified the five core values that are sort of in the middle of the book that we just recently published, Relational Revolution. And um, so um, those five values, I think, are... Uh, what were our attempt to kind of what was a very complex uh, situation into some clear language and identify some of the big features that seem to be emerging wherever we kind of noticed this relational revolution unfolding. Uh, so they were complex enough. So let me give you the statement to, to kind of let listeners kind of have a sense for what we're talking about there. This was the, this was the short phrase that we came up to capture those five values. So Luke 10 is a network of joy-fueled, Jesus-led communities of practice that are nurturing spiritual, or that are equipping spiritual moms and dads to nurture ecosystems of grace. So five values, a mouthful, uh, mindful in that one phrase. We realized we would need to probably write a book about each of those values to kind of unpack what that meant and how we were seeing it work. And and uh, so we started um, writing those books. We wrote Joy Field, and it was published in 2020. Um, to, it was well-received and became a bestseller. And we were right in the middle of uh, working on the next one, Jesus Led, when uh, we were at a retreat kind of working on that. And uh, uh, in the middle of the retreat, we kind of realized, you know, um, if we keep Plugging along at this rate, it's going to be another decade before we have all fired this book. That. And uh, meanwhile, God is up to some amazing things all over the world. Maybe the time has come for us to write um, sort of a simple introduction to the five big ideas that can help people kind of grasp those those things uh, sort of high level. And then uh, if they're interested, they can run with that on their own or, or maybe we can partner with them in that way. So that led us to write uh, The Relational Revolution, which is the, the book that came out this earlier this year. John said in the middle of the retreat, you know, uh, while we were writing Jesus Led, Jesus led us to write another book. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe that brings us up to somewhere close to where we are at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And what are you seeing as you are these 
these concepts that you're talking about obviously aren't just theoretical, but what are you seeing in practice with the communities um, that you're practicing with and partnering with right now? What does what does it look like? These joy, joy fueled, Jesus led. I didn't get all the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's a big question. Of course, it, it it is always a one off. That's that's one of the things that we Americans, especially Americans uh, who have thought about leadership or have been academically trained, find hard to accept um, that the reality that um, this thing that God is up to is not franchisable. Uh, it's, it's, it, there's not the one true model. That was the traditions from which I came really wanted to lean into the idea that we could figure this all out, come up with the one true model and then replicate that everywhere. Right. Uh, right. But anybody who's actually been doing church planting for a while, uh, even anyone who's actually been raising a real family for a period of time, uh, kind of knows intuitively, no, it can never be the case that we have one true model because every single context is different. Every single person is different. Every community that God calls together is unique. And so we're not going to get around the, the critical need to be Jesus-led and joy-fueled wherever we are, but that's going to look an infinitely high variety. That's going to, that, there's going to be an infinite variety of ways that that finds expression. Mm-hmm. Is that making sense? Absolutely. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that kind of reminds me of some of the other things I've heard you talk about with regards to what community looks like and the listening and the love and Um, the values that really create community are different than I think what a lot of us have. We're we're taught 20 years ago, at least, with a model or a program. And um, it's really inspirational to hear some of those. Would you speak a little bit about those foundations of love and listening to one another, the intergenerational components you've really encouraged? You bet. Yeah. Well, um, joy-fueled, the first of our values really um, is so foundational in that it speaks to the nature of God's own life, right? So God is a God of joy because God is a God of love. Um, and if we get clear that that's the case, um, then that shapes uh, all of the other uh, things that are downstream from that reality. I like to um, to tell my students, they usually have short attention spans, so I try to keep it fairly simple and quick for them. Mm-hmm. But I, I like to, to to draw their attention to the wonderful constellation of words in the Greek language around the idea of joy. So there's charis, which is joy, uh, uh, or, or is a gift, that which brings joy. There's kara, which is joy itself. And then there's eucharistia. We often miss the car in that, but uh, it's the word for gratitude or thanksgiving or joy returned, right? And it's that little constellation of words that really show us how love in action works. If I love you, I give you a gift that brings you joy, right? So your joy wells up and you naturally um, say thank you, right? And so that flow of uh, a gift of, that brings joy to a person and then re- results in, in gratitude welling up is the one regenerative reality that we know of in the universe. You, you get more than you start with. Um, and of course, that's the case because God is love. And um, so 
you know, when we start um, seeing life as, um, I like to say sometimes, uh, love grows in the dance of joy between gift and gratitude. We see that that is the dance of God's life. That is the invitation to which we're called um, as as people uh, in the, in the grand story that God is telling. Um, then that that profoundly shapes the the day in day out expectation we have for church, for this community, for this extended family that God has called us into. Um, so. Um, that's a start of an answer to your question, Joy. I'm not sure I got all of it there. What else would be helpful in response to that? Well, in that last little bit that you were saying there, in this dance and the give and the take and the the reciprocity and the the regenerativeness of that, um, you're speaking about something that that's part of day in and day out living. It's not something yeah. segregated or put off to a certain time of the week. Um, and, and I know you've experienced that some with your students and is that kind of the heart of, is it the Eden group or what is that? Yeah. Um, how, how did that, how did that go through a stage of being birthed and, and what does that look like now? Is it something that's day in, day out? How do you live that? <laughs> yeah, we're working on it. That's the answer. Let me. Let me tell you a story from a couple of weeks ago that'll maybe help us get into the answer to your mm -hmm. question. We were gathered on a Sunday. We typically get together Sundays to share a meal and then the Lord's Supper together and and then usually something related to the children. Uh, we've got a, a big spectrum from some of us old timers who are in our 60s to some folks that are just a year or two old and lots of stages in between. And... Um, the children had been planning for um, a week to have a, a little talent show for us uh, after our meal. So, uh, so we all got around in a circle and, and the kids uh, came on stage. And there were two little girls in particular that are part of our community that are kind of shy. Uh, one of them was adopted and the others had some, some challenges of various kinds. And so they're both uh, uh, pretty shy, but they had chosen to do a karaoke piece Course. And uh, so the first little girl got up in front of us and she, and she uh, started singing very softly. We could hardly hear her. But as she heard the crowd roaring its approval, she began to sing more loudly. <laughs> By the end, she was singing very boldly. And then the other girl came up and it was the same thing. She, we could hardly hear her sing at first. But as she began to see how approved of and how loved and treasured she was in that circle, uh, she began to sing with great boldness. And by the time both girls were done, they were just dancing. And uh, it was uh, so beautiful, but it was also such a clear picture to me, and I think to all of us, that we are, we are designed to thrive in a place where we're seen and heard, understood and celebrated, uh, and where um, our gift, whether we're seven years old or 97 years old matters where, where we show up and we bring something that matters to the family, right? In, in healthy family, that's the case, right? And, and so often, whatever we've done in the name of Jesus has often been at some distance from that. And so that's, that's um, maybe a little window into our life as a community. We celebrated our 10-year anniversary 
uh, last weekend. So we've been at it 10 years and uh, it has been a grand adventure, very difficult, but beautiful, powerful world changing for us and for lots of others. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. great example. It, that is a great example. I, I, I really like that you added it's been really difficult. Yeah. Because that is a that is a reality. Yeah. I, I mean, go back, go back to your experience of going back to the Pacific Northwest, right? And these were the promises and life was supposed to look this way in, in this faith journey. Uh that's not what we're promised in scripture. That's not what we're promised by Jesus. No. Um, and when you do get authentic in community, that can be really threatening for some people. And some people just bail when yeah. When honesty becomes the forefront, uh, you know, they can't handle it. So yeah. speak, speak to that a, a little bit, because I think it's important that people realize as, as we lead in these new kinds of ways, um, it's, uh, it's not all rose petals. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's, that is the truth. Well, uh, shortly after Karen and I returned from England, I sat down with our dean here and said, uh, Jack, we are, we're doing good work on the book work side of things. You know, we've got great academic credentialing and we've got great teaching going on at that level. But if we're going to prepare men and women for Christian service and leadership throughout the world, leadership calls for um, a way of life that is learned by practicing. And uh, we're not going to get there if we don't change the, the fundamental paradigm. And he was kind enough to agree and and so we launched a, a, a grand experiment that ran for 10 or 12 years called the Missionary Residency for North America. Worked with 70 plus grad students and their spouses in those years. And um, 10 years into that process, Karen and I, kind of my wife and I looked at each other and said, this has been amazing. And there's some things that are still missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is our students are coming to us more and more broken. Um, they... Uh, they, these are seminary students, right? These are folks who are all in for for God and for doing things that matter uh, with their lives. But um, so many of them from broken homes, single family homes, often mostly raised themselves. Lots of hurt, lots of uh, dysfunction in their fundamental habits of how to deal with people in conflict it was just getting really hard to 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 herd that bunch of cats into something that even began to began to look like community. Um, we also realized these guys have no imagination for intergenerational community. They have spent their entire life with their peers from preschool on into their mid-20s, sometimes early 30s. Their, their whole imagination for what they're going to do with their life when they get from here to Chicago or here to Singapore is find a group of friends that are their age peers that will be their friends and walk with walk with them in the journey and of course anybody that's their age at that stage is as snowed as they are you know working 50 60 hours a week trying to eventually raise kids trying to just make ends meet financially and in every other way and and with nobody but people your own generation around you are so fragile you are so vulnerable to blowing up and you guys have been at it long enough to know that's that's not the rare exception. Um, and so we realize they they have got to see and somehow experience intergenerational, interdependent communities of God's love, not just some folks that are 
all on fire for doing something great for Jesus. Uh, you really, you know, God designed us in intergenerational community. And of course, in America, we're typically four generations away from that kind of lived experience, right? Um, it was about this time in 1923 that people began to move off the farm and into the cities and um, the Walton style of life, which was mom, dad, the kids, grandma, grandpa, uncles, aunts, cousins, all living together, eating meals together, working on the sawmill business together. That was an normal human life uh, in America up to that point and around the world up to that point. And in some places still is the normal human life, right? Extended family, much better understood often in the majority world than it is in, uh, in North America and Europe. But we're generations away from that experience. But what happens when you're living in a walkable world where nearly everyone you see, you know, uh, good and bad and ugly, right? You know, yeah. and, and these, you know, you're, you're shopping with people, you know, you're working with people, you know, you're going to school with people, you know, their families know your families. It's hard to get away with anything because the network is so tight. Um, but the walkable world that is extended, interdependent, intergenerational community has been normal human experience for all of human history until about 100 years ago. And now we're, you know, four generations deep into this grand experiment to try to make it work with without that, you know, nuclear mm -hmm. family and then single family and then really broken family. And often um, these days, uh, folks who are, are living without a family and uh, uh, boy, that's that's a challenging thing to get over if you've never experienced the real thing, right? right. And uh, and then the third thing that was becoming really clear to us is that in America, the idea of a covenant community or uh, a community that has been gathered by, not by our choice, but by God's calling, that have been brought together in God's will for God's purposes, and therefore we actually are a family, a new family, the kind Jesus promised would be established with the coming of the kingdom, uh, means that we're not autonomous individuals who can just do whatever we jolly well please, regardless of what God's saying to us through the people who know us and love us best. That's really hard for Americans to, 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 to receive. Um, but, um, you know, if, if people know me well, they can help me see better than I can see all by myself. And, um, you know, so that need for, again, for people to experience this kind of community. Um, so that led, that's what really led to the formation of the Eden community um, back in uh, 2013. Um, and I invited, we, Karen and I invited a couple of friends who were former students and Several others have, been, have joined us since then, and we've been just kind of walking this journey out together. And uh, we've been doing interdependent, intergenerational community of God's love, and it's difficult. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, and it's richly rewarding and life-giving, and I've grown the most that I've grown in, in any period of my life uh, through this community. So that maybe begins to give a little bit of um, detail to what we're, what we're up to with the Eden community. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Thank you for that. <clears throat> Share with us a bit more about re relational revolution. Um, and, and there are 
lots of resources for people listening, uh, and we'll make reference to these in the show notes. But uh, give, give us, I, I'm, I really would love to hear the five shifts. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we've talked a little bit about joy fueled. Jesus led is the next one. Um, you know, the contrast of Jesus led to what we normally experience. I mean, nearly every church and every Christian would say it's important to be Jesus led. We would agree with that in principle, right? Um, but um, in practice, um, we often act as though Jesus is not here. Mm. You know, it's, it, I have to keep reminding myself, I'm, as the three of us are talking here, the Lord's right here in the middle of this conversation. He's in the middle of the conversation we're having as listeners listen to this. He's prompting us, he's leading us, he's guiding us. If we're paying attention, we can be in on the thing that God is actually up to today. And I just have to say that that was not how I was raised. Even in a good family that loved God, we were, um, as uh, I think a number of people in recent years have begun to say, we were functional deists. We, we, we wanted to believe that God was present, but we were acting as though God is not present. And you can see it by the ways that we made decisions, by the ways that we uh, lived our lives. It, it was even evident in the um, in the one of the popular bracelets at the time. What would Jesus do? You know, it's something that undergirds that whole notion. I mean, it's there's something good about it, right? We would want to live like Jesus would live, but the assumption there is Jesus isn't here, so we have to be able to calculate what Jesus would do. Well, what does that lead us to? Well, I need to become fluent in ancient Hebrew and Greek. I need to understand the early Christian documents. I need to understand 2,000 years of church history. I need to get as much information as I possibly can to calculate what Jesus would do in any given situation. And, uh, you know, if you look at, if you, if you spend a little time breathing the air of Scripture, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Christian Scriptures, that is simply foreign to that world. There's no, what would God be doing? What would Jesus be doing on the part of the faithful followers of Jesus? It's the acts of the Holy Spirit is Jesus is up to stuff through his spirit all the time. And Jesus is doing things constantly. And we are being invited in this new age where the spirit has been poured out on all people to be led by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk with the Spirit, to to be awake to the fact that God is here. The old way was God is in a box. God is on Mount Gerizim, as the Samaritan woman said, or God is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, no, the new age is an age where those who truly worship God will do so at the location of Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth are the location of access to God in our time. And so we're in this new age, this new covenant that is that we've been invited into, where um, God is here and God is with us, and we can be led by Jesus. And uh, that is revolutionary. I, I have a friend uh, in South Carolina that sent me a T-shirt um, uh, a few years ago. As we were talking about this one day, and he's two weeks later, he, he sent me this T-shirt that says RFD on the front of it. Recovering functional deist. <laughs> and I, I really feel like I'm still a toddler at this. I, I have been so enculturated 
in a functional as a mindset that I still have to be steadily reminded. I re depend on my friends to keep, well, can't, you know, we could pray about this. Oh, yeah, we could, couldn't we? We could listen to the Lord about what he's wanting to do here. Oh, yeah, we could do that, couldn't we? Um, but it, it's, at some level, it seems ridiculous to me how deeply I have um, taken in that, that alternate worldview. And um, so working our way out of it, Jesus led. I can't give that much time to all of them or we'll never get off of here. <laughs> but so let me touch on the last three real quickly. So the, the third is communities of practice. You know, we've, we've tended to think of church. I'm, I'm, this is a little harsh. So you forgive me. I love the church. I love the body of Christ. I have given my life to her and will continue to do so. But we've often thought of church, if we're honest with ourselves, as a sort of a sort of a spiritual book club, you know, where we get together, we swap some ideas, we affirm some truth, we celebrate that maybe with a little bit of singing, and then we move on with our life. But that's not what Jesus did. That's not what Jesus invited us into, right? That's not what Jesus did to start with. If we think Jesus is God, then we think Jesus is smart. Well, how did he do this? He created a community of practice, community practice, not a community of perfection, a community of practice. He invited these fishermen, these tax collectors, these zealots, this motley band of people that had almost nothing in common, but their willingness to follow Jesus. And over three years, day in and day out, those 12, along with the women that came alongside, traveled with Jesus, saw him uh, in his high points, in his low points, saw him loving the crowds, saw him loving the individuals. They were invited to do the same, to go out in pairs, to get practice in the doing of the coming of the kingdom of God. They were a community of practice. Where is that in our time? And isn't that supposed to be normal Christian life, right? Where we engage in this way of life, which is love, the life of God. Um, from dawn to dusk, day after day. Where is that happening? That's the invitation. Come follow me. Not one day a week, not uh, for a two-hour time slot, uh, where you agree with my truth uh, in principle. No, I'm, I'm looking for people who are practitioners. That's what it means to be a disciple, is to be someone who's actually doing it. So, communities of practice. The fourth one is spiritual moms and dads. How do these kind of communities actually come into, into place? Well, in the first century, they came into place in houses of peace. That's where Jesus sent the disciples. Look for someone who, where God's work has gone before you. God preveniently got there first, prepared those hearts, prepared those people. They're embedded in a place. They know the culture. They know the language. They already have influence. Look for those people. When Jesus sends the disciples out in Luke 10, he says, don't talk to other people on the way. That's weird. And he says, when you find these people, don't go house to house. That's weird. Doesn't Jesus want everybody to know the good news as soon as possible? No, apparently not. Jesus seems to think there's another project underway here, which is the inbreaking of the life of God in the community of God. This is the living testimony that will be the beachhead for the kingdom of God wherever it breaks in. So, um, how do you get to those? You find those spiritual moms and dads who have been through the stages of life maturation, who have been learning how to love, 
who have gotten less and less selfish as they've grown up and who have the capacity to love their neighbors uh, along with their own nuclear family or biological family. Um, those people, whether it's uh, Lydia or, or Cornelius, uh, have the capacity to, to bear the inbreaking kingdom in their context. So spiritual moms and dads, lots more to say about that, obviously. And the last one, which is the hardest for me to say fast, is ecosystems of grace. So um, as we read in the New Testament, through the books of the New Testament, it becomes pretty evident that um, some of the most thoughtful and well-considered uh, descriptions, understandings of the nature of the church are in the books of Ephesians and Colossians, some of the last books in the New Testament in terms of the, when they were written. And, um, and, in, and in Ephesians, for example, in chapter 1, we're told that God, is, God has got a plan for bringing all things in heaven and earth under the headship of Jesus. Well, what is that plan? It's called an economia of the fullness of time. Well, what is an economia? We, we sometimes tend to transliterate that word into economy. But for those of us who speak English, that tends to bring up the interdependence of financial relationships in a group or in a organization or a country. But economia is much richer than that because it's the, it's the word for the household operating system of the first century, which is the whole, the whole Mediterranean world, whether you're Roman or Jewish, Persian, everybody lives in one of these extended families we've been talking about, right? Mom and dad, the kids, but also our work that we share together, maybe some folks that are helping us with our work. But it's, it's, a, it's an extended family. It's an oikos or ecos, and um, it is a household. And every single time that the New Testament uses that word, or there's a whole host of cognates of that word, what it's talking about is the normal experience of life in an extended family. So when this language gets used in Ephesians and Colossians to talk about the consummation of all things in God's purposes, um, that's what's in mind. You know, this extended family that is going to become, um, as Colossians puts it, um, the, the fullness of divinity in bodily form. Colossians chapter, um, chapter 2 talks about in Christ, the fullness of deity is presently living in bodily form. And you, Colossians, this is a little band of believers meeting in a home somewhere. You, Colossians, have the fullness of Christ. So, uh, to, to realize that those six-year-olds and those 97-year-olds in that whole band that God has called together in a particular location is God's plan for the reconciliation of everything. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, talking to Communitas, but uh, this is, I don't, you know, I see no evidence in Scripture that God has a plan B or plan C or a plan D. It is God's plan. Um, vibrant families of Jesus, joyful, interdependent, intergenerational communities of God's love who are engaged in God's life and therefore engaged in God's purpose as a part of that. Um, that's a, that's, probably about as fast as you can get an old professor to say those five things. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Yeah, and in thinking of 
those five things that just leads me right into wanting to ask you about divine governance, because those those family systems have to make decisions and have to figure out living together in their context. And and I know it comes from the theory of dynamic governance. Could could you say a little bit about how you landed on that and and what that actually looks like then in those ecosystems of grace? Sure. Well, governance is one of these key parts of any culture that often go unnoticed until you realize, oh, this is not working well, right? Yeah. I think if you look around in a lot of uh, Western democracies, you can say, boy, there's some things that are not working very well right now. Um, but um, as, as we were getting ready to uh, basically launch Eden Community, um, I began to take a really hard look at, at the you know, how, how, what, what is a way of governing that is consistent with scripture, that's consistent with how, um, how the whole ecosystem is designed. And, um, I had done a number of research in a lot of places and people would routinely say things like, well, we started with a pure consensus model. And pretty soon we found out that didn't work very well because anybody could block any decision, regardless of how much they knew, how much they cared, how much they were even engaged in working out the solution. Um, and so we were losing people, good people, all the time when we tried to do it that way. Then we went to um, majority rules, good old you know, democratic approaches to things. And and that, we started getting more things done, but then we also started hating each other. And we started finding ourselves in warring camps, always trying to get a little bit more support so we could be the majority and kick out uh, kick out the others that are holding rule. Um, and then we threw up our hands and just said, Joe, you're a nice person. You seem to love God. Lead us and we'll follow, you know, kind of like the children of Israel at some points, you know, and uh, that works great until Joe gets selfish or Joe gets stupid or Joe gets greedy or evil. And then it doesn't work well at all. And uh, so, but then several people said, but we found sociocracy and this, since we found sociocracy, we have been uh, getting things done, we're in more harmony than we've ever been, and uh, this is something that's worth exploring. So after I'd read that three or four times, I, I thought, I need to check this out. So I contacted John Buck, who brought this approach to governance to the English-speaking world after translating a lot of it from the original Dutch. Um, it's a lot of history there, but um, and then we began to think about how that aligns with Kind of core Christian theology, and and it turns out that basically this approach to governance had grown out of uh, an early Quaker school, and uh, some a person who'd done some deep study in the process of governance in the natural world called cybernetics. And so, um, so we've been doing it. It sounds kind of mysterious. Uh, it's really just about paying attention to the voices in the room and learning how to uh, organize yourself in, su in such a way that every voice matters. Um, and also recognizing that some voices have more wisdom, have more perspective than others. And so um, there's there's lots more to learn about that. But we, we teach that in Luke 10. We teach that in the Eden community training that we do. And I typically teach that in, in grad school these days because students are looking for, you know, if not what we have, then what? And I think this is a, a points us in some hopeful ways. Right. Mm -hmm. Wow. I have some history with Quaker circles in the last 10 years or so. And I've really gleaned a lot from the ways that they practice 
silence and making sure all hearts are clear on a matter and not moving forward until every person has been able to share. And yeah, it sounds really similar to some of those practices. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it, at its root. Uh, a lot of that was just saying God is here. Mm-hmm. That spark of God is in everyone. And if we are attentive to God, then we need to be learning to pay attention to each other. Right. Well, cool. Yeah, yeah, and the spirit can be heard in that collective. Yeah, listening. Yeah, Kent, this has been so wonderful, and I do hope that we get an opportunity to continue this conversation. I do, I do have one closing question. Um, so much of of what you're saying here with relational revolution, and and even within communitas, you know, our approach to community development, uh, faith community development people look at that oftentimes and say, this is just idealism, right? Mm. This, this, this is that you're, you're talking about Pollyanna and it doesn't exist. Mm. So yeah. speak to that a little bit from your perspective. Well, uh, I mean, there's, there is a sense in which a lot of that skepticism is grounded in people's experience, right? They um, maybe, Lots of people start out hopeful that I could live a life of love. I could live a life where I'm seen and heard and understood and appreciated. And um, I think, you know, where we are in certainly Western culture and North American culture is that the the longing that is unfulfilled in people's lives is is so massive at this time. I mean, all all of the films, whether they're dystopian or they're are they're romances coming out of Hollywood, all of the animated films that are coming out. You know, you look at um, some of the films that are available on some of the romance channels, they all point to this deep human longing for a place where I'm seen, where I'm heard, interdependent, intergenerational communities of love. You know, they often end almost you can count on it with a big group of people around a big table, sharing a meal, dancing, celebrating uh, the occasion that is before them, whatever it happens to be. Um, It's a universal longing because it's how we were hardwired by God, God's image as people made for love. Right. And um, it's hard. I, I think you're exactly right. We have to be, upfront and clear, it has to be extraordinarily intentional for us to live that way in our time because everything is carving and cutting away against that kind of community. But it is possible and it's being done all over the world in lots of places. There's pockets of people, they're finding each other. And uh, the good news is if people want help to get there, they can reach out to Communitas, they can reach out to Luke 10, they can reach out to dozens of other organizations that are well on the way to finding some of the skills and some of the core principles and, and most importantly, the undergirding theology, the nature of God that supports the, not only the possibility, but the inevitability of this way of life. It is not only possible, it's inevitable. I read that to the end of the story and I learned about what happens there. There's a, a grand banquet, right? Yep. The father is there, the son is there, the spirit is there, but there's a fourth and she, along with the Spirit, says, come on, come, join in this incredible 
life that is the life of God, the life of love. It's made up of people from every tongue, tribe, family, nation. God's not given up on any of that divine DNA that was originally imparted to the human family. And uh, so it's not only possible, it is inevitable. That's what I would say to someone who says, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> I like that. I like the inevitability of that. That's that's good. That's really good. Um, Ken, thank you so very much for your time. Uh, you're just full of wisdom, uh, but also you clearly live out the the five principles that you outlay. So um, that's that's an encouragement. It's also an inspiration. Um, how do people get a hold of you and Luke 10 and those kinds of things? Sure. So you can reach out to us at Luke 10 at lk10.com, lk10.com. Um, you can reach out to us at Eden Community at edencommunity.org. Um, and you can reach out to me personally. I'm Smith PK. Philip Kent, Smith PK at acu.edu. Um, but always happy to help help others who are on the journey with with us on this uh, this grand adventure God's called us into. Great. And Relational Revolution and your other books are available, I assume, on all the major book platforms. So Yes, sir. Good. Well, I encourage our listeners to check these out uh, because this is this is foundational and important stuff. And as as we move into this or continue through this era of change, uh, these are going to be great, great tools uh, that's called a compass um, for us as we go forward. Amen. So, thank you, my friend. Such a pleasure to be with you both. Hope we'll have more occasions ahead. Yes, I look forward to it. And you have been listening to another episode of the Communitas podcast. If you have enjoyed this as much as I have and are inspired by Kent and some of his ideas and practices, um, I encourage you to share this podcast with your friends and family. You also can subscribe to the Communitas podcast and get a reminder every time a new episode drops. We are available on all of the major podcasting platforms. And we certainly look forward to being with you again on another episode of the Communitas podcast. 